Hello and welcome to Colser Law and Society Talk presented by Cornell Radio for the Hill from the Hill. Uh, my name is Max. I'm a sophomore in the ILR school um, and I'm joined today by... Hi, my name is Brendan. I'm a junior in the, IL- in the ILR school um, and I'll be another one of your hosts. And I'm your guys' last co-host. My name is Siva and I'm a junior in the ILR school. So today what we thought we were we should do for our first episode is each bring one Supreme Court case on the docket to summarize and discuss um, and sort of get a little bit of a preview for um, the next wave of decisions that's going to be coming out for the Supreme Court. Uh, so I'll get started. Uh, the course, the case that I picked was the Ohio Adjutant General's Department versus the Federal Labor Relations Authority. And so basically, this case involves the Federal Labor Relations Authority, FLRA, which is the agency responsible for overseeing federal public sector unions. It's basically like the NLRA for the federal public sector. And this is a statute that dates back to Title VII of the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978. Um, And so where the um, where Ohio comes in is state national guards come in um, in the form of their technicians who are classified by Title Ten of the U.S. Code as dual status technicians, which labels them as employed both by the states and by the federal government. Thus, it has generally been held that they are functionally federal employees for the purpose of the FLRA, and so um, these uh, state militia technicians have unions. Um, And they've been in collective bargaining agreements with states pretty much since um, the inception of the Civil Service Reform Act. So in 2014, the Ohio National Guard's union contract expires, expires, and Ohio claims to be continuing to negotiate with the aim of getting a new collective bargaining agreement. But in 2016, they issue a memo seemingly rejecting the notion that they are bound to negotiate with the union. And they begin terminating union dues reductions. Um, And so then in March and April of 2017, the union files complaints with the FLRA, and the Guard responds to the complaint by admitting certain facts but denying that they denied the statute, that they violated the statute by saying that it didn't constitute an agency, and that the technicians didn't apply as employees under the statute. So basically, they are arguing on multiple fronts that um, they're not federal agencies and that their technicians don't imply, apply as employees under the statute. So an administrative law judge denies the guard's motion for summary judgment and essentially found that both of those claims were untrue as has sort of followed with the precedent since 1983 that these technicians are covered under the FLRA. The guard appeals the motion and it goes to the Sixth Circuit Court. The Sixth Circuit Court um, rejects the guard's claims that the guard that the FLRA didn't apply to them, um, and then the guard also in the Sixth Circuit court, court case is arguing that basically any regulation is unconstitutional because they interpret the militia clause of the Constitution as granting authority to the state in any case where the guard isn't called into active duty, and this extra constitutional argument um, was rejected by the Sixth Circuit Court. So basically, they reject the arguments by the Guard, including another argument that it would violate federal law to comply with the FLRA order, which is another 
bit of a technicality thing that we don't really need to get into. And so now um, it has been taken up by the Supreme Court, or at least parts of it were taken up by the Supreme Court, which is extremely strange because this is seemingly settled precedent. There really hasn't been any wavering, wavering from the courts on this question of whether or not they are covered under the FLRA. Um, and so the fact that it's taken up by this extremely conservative Supreme Court suggests that they might be um, looking to overturn that decades-long precedent. So basically, the court was presented with two questions. Does the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978, which empowers the Federal Labor Relations Authority to regulate the labor practices of federal agencies only empower, or of federal agencies only, empower it to regulate the labor practices of state militias? And so that's the question that the court ended up taking up. And then the second question, which is the constitutional question, does it does does the Militia Act only cover only give the federal government authority in case of active duty that they rejected? So we aren't going to be seeing any debates about the Militia Act. We will be seeing debates about the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978. Um, so this is at least a fairly significant question with public sector unions because these civil service technicians take up about 20,000 um, are covered by CBAs and those CBAs may in all like a majority of those CBAs may in all likelihood be invalidated by the Supreme Court's decision um, when states are no longer mandated to bargain with these unions. Um, at least 11 other states are probably going to immediately invalidate these CBAs uh, because they've backed the petition by Ohio. Um, so this is pretty significant for at least a small subset of civil service technicians. And so I thought it was an interesting case to bring up. Um, I think we don't really talk about public sector unions that much, and we definitely don't talk about National Guard unions that much, but it's pretty significant. So uh, Brendan and Siva, why don't we get to some discussions. Sure, yeah. Well, um, this is definitely an ideal vehicle for conservative forces to try to reduce the scope of the FLRA, right? Because the National Guard, confusingly, uh, is both a federal agency, but also has representatives in each state. So the employees are both federal and state employees at the same time. Um, and that's a lot of what this argument is about, right? Whether in the capacity that they're as technicians, Right, whether they should be covered by the FLRA. Um, Max, could you talk a little more about what arguments the uh, petitioners are putting forward to say that they are not federal employees? Yeah, so basically um, the petitioners are arguing first the constitutional argument, which is a bit absurd, but basically the argument is that the like functions of authority lie in those state um lie in the states. And to some extent, that is reasonable because those states are, um, are are tasked with having a lot of authority. And once again, it's a very, very complicated situation. Oh. And if, if I recall correctly, the like the leader of the state militia, the state adjutant general uh, who directs the work of the employees um, and the tasks they're assigned to are for the state, um, so it is. Uh, it does appear that a lot of their work day to day is for the state. 
It does. And another obviously interesting aspect of it is who who is the union bargaining with? They're bargaining with the state. Um, it's part of that is why we're getting to that issue. Um, but I think this this generally lies in the trend of the Supreme Court. This um, or this Supreme Court has been in increasing the power of the states and increasing federalism. And I think this is just one of those examples of something you 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 thought was settled and you you thought was established, but it's it's going in a direction we didn't really expect. There's a lot of that these days, of course. Um, Seven, do you want to talk about? It? Yeah, no. So it seems like um, <clears throat> it seems like the the states are tasked with uh, having a lot of authority over these employees, and that the like the leader of the state militia directs work for the employees, and the union bargains directly with the state. So could you just outline the arguments for um, how the federal how these employees can be counted as federal employees? Well, once again, I think it it sort of goes back like to the militia clause of the constitution which puts these state national guards as like to some extent federal agencies they are still functioning at the behest of the federal government in the way other state agencies like a state department of labor isn't going to be functioning at the behest of the federal government and once again there's that whole question of active duty um when these when these militias go into active duty they are um going to be completely federal um, agencies. And so basically the established precedent is that these civil service technicians who function on a day-to-day basis under the state are still federal employees and should still be protected because of that active duty aspect and because of the fact that these militias are still fundamentally somewhat federal agencies. So so if I understand correctly, these uh, state militias are only employees of the federal government when they are in active duty, and any other time they are employees of the state. That's not exactly correct. Sure. They're strictly federal employees when they're nationalized by the federal government. Uh, and it's unclear, my, from what I know, uh, if they're strictly state employees um, when they're not on active duty, or if they're a hybrid between federal and state employees. So I think the precedent generally errs on the side that they are jointly employed um, when not on active duty, but a lot of those day-to-day responsibilities um, are going to lie in state enforcement, is I think mm-hmm. where the issue lies. And we're not really going to be seeing a questioning of that completely because, uh, once again, the court did not take up the constitutional question. They just took up the Civil Service Reform Act question, uh, which basically means it's going to be a relatively narrowly scoped case about whether the FLRA applies, whether they're employees for the purposes of collective bargaining. Okay, not, not to beat a dead horse, but we do acknowledge that the National Guard and the Ohio National Guard are separate entities. Is that correct? Yeah. So how can we claim that um, the union is bargaining with a federal employer when in fact it is a state employer? Well, no one's arguing that it's bargaining with a federal employer. It's just arguing that this, um, this entity falls under the scope of federal law and therefore the FLRA can mandate it to bargain. 
So you're saying that you can uh, bargain under the FLRA even if your employer is not a federal uh, executive or agency? I think in part that's the argument, and in part the argument is that the Ohio National Guard is still subject is, is, is still partially a federal agency, regardless of whether it's the same as the whole National Guard, which is wholly a federal agency. The Ohio National Guard is in part a federal agency. Interesting. In the couple of minutes we have left, I actually want to talk to you about a different issue that's related to this issue. Um, you, used the, you described the employees as being jointly uh, federal and state employees, and that brings us to a similar issue that's going on right now, but joint employer status. Do you want to talk about the parallels between this case and that case, if you see any? Yeah, of course. I mean, I am fascinated by joint employer status. I think it's one of the more interesting subjects in um, private employment law. And I think part of my interest in the FLRA goes more so into an interest of in the NLRA and into private sector bargaining. And at the exact same time, we're seeing this question of the um, joint employer status, to some extent, of um, the federal government and state governments for National Guards. We're also seeing a proposed new rule in the NLR by the NLRB that's intending to broaden joint employer status. Um, so we're gonna we're seeing the Supreme Court likely going in an opposite direction as the NLRB in the private sector and the new NLRB um, proposed new rule. We we don't have a lot of time to talk about it, but it's interesting because it's reinstating that um, 2015 Browning Ferris precedent, which sort of like shook up um, the potential for joint employer law. Um, at the end of the Obama administration, it provided this opportunity for um, the NLRB to use a bit of a broader indirect control um, criteria to determine joint employment compared to a um, more compared to the the historic direct control argument that was used. And then, obviously, 2015, you see two years later um, the. Trump NLRB starts to dismantle that um, and then completely dismantles it. And so now you have a proposed new rule that's reestablishing it. Um, and it sort of gets into the problems of the NLRB and the flip floppiness of it. But it um, it's a fascinating issue. And it does sort of it is it is interesting that the court system and the uh, executive agencies are moving in opposite directions on these questions of who's an employer and who isn't. Joint employer status is really interesting, and I definitely plan on doing more research about the idea of workers having uh, multiple employers. My case is about election law and states potentially having plenary power over deciding redistricting maps. Last year, North Carolina's Republican-dominated state legislature passed, on a party-line vote, an extreme partisan gerrymander to lock in a supermajority of the state's 14 congressional seats. The gerrymander was so extreme that an evenly divided popular vote would have awarded 10 seats to Republicans and only 4 to Democrats. The map was a radical statistical outlier more favorable to Republicans than 99.9% .9 of all possible maps. Voters contested the map at state court, contending that the map violated the state's constitution's free election clause, which basically says that all elections shall be free. That's literally what it says. It's one line. The case made its way up to the Supreme Court of North Carolina. In February of this year, 
North Carolina's Supreme Court struck down the map, describing it as an egregious and intentional partisan gerrymander designed to enhance Republican performance and thereby give a greater voice to those voters than to any others. In response, North Carolina's Democrats asked the state court to order a special master to create a fair, independent map for the 2022 congressional elections. Unwilling to accept North Carolina's Supreme Court's decision and the appointment of a special master, two Republican legislatures asked the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and reinstate their gerrymandered map. A form of this case has been, to the, has been before to the court previously. Back in March, right after the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled on the gerrymandered redistricting map, the court rejected the Republican legislature's emergency appeal to put the gerrymandered map back in place immediately. However, at the urging of four justices, the legislatures filed a regular appeal asking the court to consider whether to reinstate the map for elections after 2022. So, in June, the court agreed to take up this case. Now, to talk about each side's arguments. In urging the Supreme Court to reinstate the gerrymandered congressional map, the North Carolina Republican legislatures, legislators are relying on the highly controversial independent state legislature theory or ISL. ISL is a reading of the federal constitution that would give state legislatures broad authority to gerrymander electoral maps and pass voter suppression laws. But what exactly is ISL and how are the gerrymanders in North Carolina using it to reinstate their redistricting map? Well, when it comes to independent state legislature theory, there are two relevant clauses in the United States constitution. One is the elections clause, which reads, the time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations. So notice that in, in that language, the Constitution prescribes the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives to be the sole authority of the state and the, the state's legislature thereof. And the second relevant clause um, says that each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof, again the same wording, may direct a number of electors. So proponents of ISL read these clauses to mean that state legislatures have plenary power over how to appoint electors for federal elections. Extreme forms of this theory posit that even state constitutions cannot take this absolute power from state legislatures. Now, if this theory prevails, then the free exercise clause in North Carolina's constitution will not affect their legislature's power to appoint electors any way they want. The defendants in this case reject independent state legislature theory and instead instead subscribe to the traditional interpretation of the word legislature. The long-running understanding of the word legislature, they claim, refers to each state's general lawmaking process in its entirety including all the normal procedures and limitations. So, for example, if a state constitution allows legislation to be blocked by a governor's veto or a citizen referendum, as some states' constitutions do, then gerrymandered maps can also be blocked through the same means. And state courts must ensure that laws for federal elections, like all laws, comply with their state constitutions. The defendants also claim that state Supreme Court's free election clause, which mandates that Elections shall be free, gives the judiciary the power to review redistricting proposals, ensuring they are indeed fair and constitutional. So, in all, Moore v. Harper presents an opportunity for the Supreme Court to finally rule on the long-standing debate 
over state legislative authority in federal elections. The implications for this case are enormous. If ISL is upheld, highly partisan redistricting lines can be drawn within states without any judicial review by courts or executive review in the form of, say, the signature of a governor. However, is this the right interpretation of the United States Constitution's relevant clauses? What do you guys think? I sort of want to start by approaching this from, I guess, um, a more recent news standpoint. Um, I think we're, we all have the midterms on our mind, and uh, one of the biggest stories of the midterms was obviously the disastrous New York results for Democrats, and that came as a result of Democratic attempts to gerrymander um, the hell out of the state that were also similarly struck down in state court in the exact same manner. So um, I guess I'm curious how like how, how you think Democrats are going to approach a decision that finds um, for ISL and whether you think this is going to ultimately result in just extreme gerrymandering on both sides. I know California has independent redistricting. Maybe we see that start to go away and we just start to see the same results just happening in different places. Yeah, great question. I actually wasn't even aware that California had independent redistricting, um, but I was aware that uh, New York this past midterms faced pretty harsh failures in terms of garnering the democratic support that they that they wanted um but if the supreme court were to rule on this case more v harper that gerrymandered partisan maps are completely constitutional within the meaning of and and are within the meaning of the united states constitution i actually think that both parties would be okay with this you know you you have you'd have a state like north carolina that a republican controlled legislature that would that would uh, be fine and happy make, creating their own gerrymandered Republican map the same way that you'd have a state like New York um, creating its own democratically gerrymandered map. Wouldn't it really come down to a calculus on the part of both parties as to who would win every you know, subsequent election based on how the, how the states are right now? Yeah, but if you look at a state like New York, for instance, whose uh, whose assembly, whose whose state assembly has been blue for the longest time, I think th- there are some states that 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 would be pretty happy if um, they had plenary power um, over determining their the status of their of their uh, redistricting maps. So, do you think that the Democrats would be as aggressive as Republicans in gerrymandering? I know that you said that. Um, the specific map that they drew was 99.99% more favorable than any other map or uh, more favorable than 99.9% of any other map. Is that right? Um, yeah, yeah. Which is quite right. impressive in the first place. So is your question, would Democrats be be happy with an outcome that upholds uh, gerrymandering? Well, or? I'm saying given that you know Democrats tend to be more concerned with issues of racial justice and diversity and representation, do you think that they would gerrymander as aggressively as Republicans would? I don't know. This is a political science question. But yeah, if you look at a state like New York, who has historically uh, gerrymandered in favor of the Democratic Party, I, I'd i say that Democrats uh, would be just as happy and willing as Republican legislatures to, uh, to instate 
political partisan maps to achieve their own p- political ends. How much do you think this could change um, the spotlight and focus of politics onto the state level since state legislatures will still be subject to state laws ensuring fair elections and so now it's going to be it could be so focused on how these state legislatures go what color they go and how they decide the state is going to go therefore um how much do you think this changes like a national spotlight um onto state legislatures in a way that we haven't really seen historically i think it'll change it enormously um, because if state legislatures have the full and plenary power to decide basically federal election outcomes and where their um, electors go when it comes to federal elections, then um, then I think a lot of national focus will start to gravitate towards uh, which which way state legislatures go. Heading back to the courts for a second, um, the court has ruled previously that um, – Questions of, ger- of gerrymandering within states are non-justiciable because they're political questions that need to be worked out by the state that comes from Rucho v. Common Cause. How did the court, if you're aware, um, accept this question when previously they've said they wouldn't take such questions? Yeah, good question. So Brendan is referring to court, uh, a previous court case um, that is called Rucho v. Common Cause, um, in which the majority ruled that questions of partisan gerrymandering are non-justiciable political question, questions that need to be worked out by the states. However, in this, ca- in this case, claims were made against the gerrymandered map, claiming that it violated the federal constitution. In Moore v. Harper, the defendants are also making the claim that the gerrymandered map violates North Carolina's, state, North Carolina's own state constitution. Rucho v. Common Cause o- only rules on political questions that are admissible under the scope of the respective state constitution. When it comes to gerrymandered maps respecting state constitutions, the controlling precedent is a case called Smiley v. Home, where justices ruled that state legislatures must operate within the boundaries of their state constitutions. If that makes sense. Um, that makes enough sense. I could try to restate it if you want. All right. Um, could you try to clarify that? Yeah. Rucho v. Common Cause, the majority did rule that questions of partisan gerrymandering are non-justiciable political questions that need to be worked out by the states. However, in Rucho, the ruling was based on a question that was permissible under the, the respective state's constitution. Whereas in the case that we're talking about now, Moore v. Harper, it is argued that the question before the court is actually non, not permissible under the state's constitution if that um, clears any confusion. Yeah, okay, so basically, because um, in Rucho it was allowed under the state constitution, the Supreme Court didn't really um, care. It doesn't matter. It, um, it being the gerrymandering. The gerrymandering. But because in Moore v. Harper, the North Carolina Supreme Court has said, not allowed, that's that's the significance that makes this. Exact, exactly, yeah. Rucho wouldn't be the controlling precedent. A case called Smiley v. Home would be the controlling precedent, which ruled that state legislatures must operate within the bounds of their state constitutions. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Hey, everybody. I'm Brendan. The case I want to look at with you all today is called Glacier Northwest v. International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Local 174. The court granted certiorari in this case a little over a month ago, so not much has been written about it yet. 
Basically, the court will consider whether a union that intentionally damaged an employer's property during a labor dispute is protected from state tort or injury claims under the National Labor Relations Act. In other words, the court will have to answer whether the union's conduct was protected under the NLRA, and if it was, whether that protection preempts or supersedes any claims the company has against the union for injuries caused by its conduct. Keep these two questions in mind as I share the facts of the case. Glacier Northwest is a concrete delivery company in the state of Washington. Before delivery, concrete is mixed in a barrel, loaded onto a mixing truck, and is then delivered to customers. Keep in mind, though, that the concrete will harden 30 minutes after mixing stops, or it'll harden over the course of a day, even if mixed continuously. The latter outcome is worse, because if the concrete hardens inside of the truck, it can cause severe damage. In either event, hardened concrete is totally useless, so Glacier has to deliver concrete on the day it's mixed to avoid expiration. The 80 or so concrete truck drivers at Glacier Northwest are represented by Local 174 of the Teamsters. In August 2017, Local 174 was bargaining intensely with Glacier, and the members were unhappy with the direction of the negotiations. On the morning of August 11th, a week before the membership would vote to ratify or reject the agreement, drivers from three of Glacier's facilities suddenly stopped working. Some had begun mixing concrete, others had started their routes, and some were at the delivery sites. Within an hour, all of Glacier's trucks had been returned, some holding partial or full loads of concrete. Glacier was able to remove all the remaining cement from the trucks, preventing damage to the equipment, but all concrete that was mixed that day was wasted. A few months later, Glacier sued Local 174 for the torts of damage to property and the driver's alleged conspiracy to commit said damage. In response, the union filed an unfair labor practice uh, complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, alleging that Glacier had retaliated against Local 174 for engaging in protected strike activity and, filed, and that they had filed a baseless, federally preempted lawsuit against the union. A Washington trial court dismissed Glacier's claims, then a Washington appeals court reversed the dismissal, and then a Washington state Supreme Court re uh, reversed the appeals court. As I mentioned at the beginning, the question that the courts struggled with, which the Supreme Court has been called on to answer, is whether the union's conduct is protected under the National Labor Relations Act, and if it is protected, whether such protections preempt the state-based tort claims. I'm going to deconstruct these questions separately, considering the arguments of both parties. So, the first question. Before we get to the first question, let's just do a little review because that was a lot of facts I just gave you all at once. Basically, a union of concrete truck drivers struck against their employer prior to the ratification of a new labor contract and ended up wasting some amount of the concrete by doing so. The employer is suing them based on state tort law for wasting the company's concrete, and the union argues that the activity is protected and, the fe and that federal labor law supersedes the state tort claims. All right, let's get into the two questions that the court will address. First, was the activity protected under Section 7 of the NLRA? Section 7 of the, of the NLRA protects, among other things, the right to engage in concerted activities for the purpose of collective bargaining. This protects workers' right to strike, but not all forms of labor conflict. For example, a union cannot organize a hit on a supervisor, even for the purpose of collective bargaining. The nature and facts of the case before us will help us determine whether the union stoppage was protected. So, the union and the company agree that precedent for this case is primarily established by San Diego Building Trades Council v. Garmin, a case from 1959 where the court held that when a union's activity is arguably subject to Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, state and federal courts must defer to the exclusive competence of the National Labor Relations Board. What does that mean? Basically, um, the National Labor Relations Board is tasked with setting the boundaries of the protection of the National Labor Relations Act. So if as long as if a court has to decide whether section 7 protected whether activity is protected by section 7 
They just have to assess whether it's arguably protected, not whether it would factually be definitely protected. And if it is, then typically um, the National Labor Relations Act would supersede um, state tort claims. So um, generally, to get a little more into strike activity, um, union strike activity is protected under Section 7. Um, so at first it seems, okay, they were on a strike. Why wouldn't it be protected? Um, however, when strike activity causes damage, like the cement that's lost from the driver strike, it's a more complicated matter than that. In ABC Concrete, the board held that the mere fact that union conduct causes inconvenience and economic loss to a company does not make it unprotected. So it is possible to have some damage to the employer property without it suddenly making it unprotected activity. For example, um, in Leprino Cheese Co., the board ruled that a cheesemaker's walk-off was protected even though the cheesemaker's walking off led to spoilage. The same would happen in a milk factory. If the milk factory workers leave in the middle of the production, milk might spoil. Um... There are limits, though, to how much damage a union can cause to the employer. In Bethany Medical Center, the, rule, the board ruled that to remain protected, employers must take reasonable precaution to protect the employer's plant, equipment, or products from foreseeable imminent danger due to the sudden cessation of their work. The union insists that by returning, the union says, in this case, that by returning the, tr the trucks to Glacier and leaving the mixers running, the employees took reasonable precaution to protect the Glacier's property from being damaged. The Washington Supreme Court found this persuasive, but the conservative Supreme Court the union faces next probably will not. Um, but on the other hand, the company also has a compelling case against this activity being protected by Section 7. Well, not exactly. See, the case that's before us is whether the court can dismiss Glacier's claims. And when the court is questioning um, a dismissal of, of claims, right, such as the state tort claims of Glacier, um, uh, a lot of states, including Washington, protect the plaintiff by saying that the non-moving party, the party that doesn't want the claims dismissed, uh, the facts will be read in, a f in the light most favorable to them. In other words, Glacier's account of the events is the one that the courts are um, supposed to go by. Um, by controlling the factual narrative, they'll be able to paint the union's actions as maliciously as possible. And according to Glacier, the union was malicious. They say the destruction of the concrete was intention was the intention of the strike rather than the indirect effect of it. Um, and the court has held previously that in a strike activity that's intended to cause harm as opposed to harm that's caused incidentally is not protected. In the NLRB v. Fansteel Metallurgical Corporation, the court explained that the NLRA does not protect destruction of employer property intended to force compliance with demands. Um, and then in NLRB, uh, in an NLRB case, Marshall Care Wheel and Foundry, the board found that... Um, Workers who had not taken reasonable precaution to prevent the destruction of employers' plant, equipment, or products uh, were not protected by the NLRA. Thus, it's likely that the court will side with the with Glacier in saying that uh, the activity was not protected. Even if it was, though, the employer still has an out because, um, well, first, right, let's just review. So if the National Labor Relations Act protects the workers' activity, normally it would preempt any state claims, so the state claims could be dismissed. However, there are two exceptions that the court created under uh, Garmin v. Building Trades, um, only one of which is relevant here. And that exception is called the, um, is referred to as the local feelings exception, um, which basically states that if the state injury claim touches interests deeply rooted in local feeling and responsibility, the autonomy of the state courts is upheld in the absence of compelling congressional direction. This is, um, so that's like a mealy-mouthed way of saying that if the, 
protected union conduct offends deeply rooted state interests, the state tort claim can overcome the NLRA's preemption. Um, the breadth with which this application can be applied is controversial. Um, in in Lodge 76 v. Wisconsin Employees Relations Commission, the court ruled that the actual or threatened destruction of property was a matter for states. In UFCW v. Walmart, a Maryland Court of Appeals held that the NLRA does not preempt a suit does not preempt a suit against a union for intentionally committing trespass. Um, so there's some leeway either way for whether uh, in destruction of property would come under this exception. Um, but of course, the court given the makeup of the court right now, will probably uh, favor the employer. Um, the union, unfortunately, in its uh, briefs, didn't even respond to this uh, exception question. And so there's no argument to be made for it. Um, the only real explanation for that is, uh, unlike Glacier, which upgraded from um, its you know local state Washington law firm representing it in the state courts, uh, went up to a nationally recognized law firm called Aaron Fox and had three, uh, a Washington-based lawyer, a New York-based lawyer, and um, another you know prominent lawyer from Aaron Fox representing them in the Supreme, the Supreme Court. Um, the union kept the same counsel from Washington State going into the Supreme Court, and it seems like they're woefully unprepared to take on Glacier and the powers that are uh, assisting them in this case. Um, do any of you guys have questions or questions for discussion? Yeah, so um, I noticed that that the union, at least in the Washington, in the court in Washington, the state court, um, used Bethany Medical and, and the board's previous ruling in Bethany Medical to say that their actions are protected. Um, Bethany Medical, if I remember correctly, uh, set created a test called the, was that the reasonable amount of protection? Uh, the, the Bethany Medical Center took, um, Bethany Medical Center established that the workers have to take reasonable precautions to protect employer property and protect uh, from damage. Right, right. And that was a um, NLRB ruling. That was an NLRB ruling. That's correct. Right. So my question is, um, my question is, to what extent do NLRB rulings control future law? Like, do, do NLRB rulings count as precedent in the same way that court rulings count as precedent? Um. Yes and no. Um, NLRB rulings create precedent for a couple things. They create precedent for, for for later board rulings, but they also establish the boundaries of the of protections for the NLRA, right? Because that because the board is the authority established to um, to set those boundaries, right? A court could overrule it based on constitutional grounds or based on uh, you know federal law, grounds of federal law of other federal laws. But um, when you're weighing whether when you're kind of just trying to interpret the National Labor Relations Act, the board's authority sets precedent. I noticed that Bethany Medical Center happened a while ago, and that and and that the the current um, NLRB is made up of members that are different than the members that that uh, the that uh, were on the board at the time of Bethany Medical. And so I'm wondering that whether or not um, precedent that was made by previous Boards composed of entirely different members are controlling on future boards that are made of totally new members. Well, it's considered persuasive, and it it's supposed to hold weight. But of course, um, given the fact that the NLRB is uh, made up of political appointments, typically it's three of the ruling party, or I guess the whoever's in the presidential um, brand, whoever's in the executive seat. Um, 
versus uh, there will be two members of the opposing party. Um, it does switch very often um, how those members will interpret questions that come before them. Um, so yes and no. All right. So I guess I want to sort of broaden this to talk a little bit more about the preemption debate, because I know we're facing uh, this conservative Supreme Court that's going to um, sort of deal a pretty damaging blow to labor. But if you back up a little bit, the preemption debate is actually not as like partisan or pro or anti-labor typically as you would think. Um, I'm going to quote uh, Ben Sachs on on labor here. For the labor movement, the question of preemption reform has been deeply divisive in recent years. Some favor relaxed preemption rules on the ground that the harm red states would do to union rights would be offset by letting progressive states enact union-friendly reforms. Others oppose relaxing preemption rules on the ground that the damage done in red states would be unacceptable, regardless of what happens in blue ones. So the Supreme Court, in their likely decision, is sort of forcing the labor movement's hand to go for a broader preemption um, advocacy. What do we think that's going to look like uh, if they're able to achieve broader preemption for the labor movement? So what, what do the state reforms look like in both blue and red states if, if we end up losing a lot of that preemption precedent on both sides? Well, it's an interesting question. I think that the NLRA provides a lot of protection as a federal labor law for, you know, um, union members. And the there are, of course, you know, blue states that seek to protect um, union members. And there are red states that typically uh, favor business and work against workers. Um, the I'm not sure exactly how, what federal laws would be uh, are preempting currently uh, blue states from protecting workers. Could you talk a little more about that? Um, yeah, I think that um, my understanding of the argument basically is that were were preemption to be um, were, were preemption to be sort of rolled back, it would allow states to sort of prosecute employers um, on union busting um, on on those grounds, as opposed to currently where it's like purely not federal obviously you have like statewide um you have statewide labor restrictions but they don't really have anything to do with organizing and they don't have anything to do with striking and so i think if you were to really broaden preemption you would you would give um states authority to sort of uh broaden labor organizing um on a state level and then obviously you would have states' rights to sort of cut into that a little bit. That's a really interesting argument. Um, but I think in this case, th- this is an interesting argument. Um, and that would be interesting to see how far states are willing to go. And we see this in other areas, of course, where states are trying to take more power from the federal government. Um, you know, civic case relates to that. Uh, your case relates to that. It kind of neatly wraps us all up in a bow. Um, and... It is doesn't always go for Republicans. Sometimes it can help Democrats. Um, I think that's actually a great place to stop.